Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode five of season five. And today I'm sharing a conversation with Sarah Sundin. So most of you know her as the celebrated author of historical fiction about World War II. And um, we've talked to her about two other books on this show, and I will link to those in the show notes so that you can listen to them if you haven't already. But she is always just full of insight and interesting stories. Um, We talked today about her newest book, The Sound of Light. So we will get right into that conversation without further ado. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on the show again. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. Your latest novel, The Sound of Light, released on February 7th. Now we're talking before it's released, but when I release this episode, your book will be out already. So can you tell me about this new book? Yes. Um, the Sound of Light is set in Denmark in, during World War II. And Baron Henrik Elefeldt is a nobleman who has been living this wasted life, living for himself. But when the Nazis come, he realizes he's not happy with the way he's living his life. And he decides to give it all up. Um, he decides to work for the resistance. He is an Olympic rower. So mm-hmm. he rows messages for the resistance from Denmark to Sweden. It's about 10 miles over the water. I couldn't do it, but Henrik can. And and, um, to do this, he has to take on a secret identity so he doesn't get arrested. And he becomes Hemming Anderson, who is just a simple shipyard worker. And he basically has to play like he's not terribly bright. He doesn't talk very much. He grows a beard um, just to conceal his identity. And meanwhile, um, Dr. Elsa Jensen is a nuclear physicist who is has a wonderful position at the Institute for Theoretical Physics in Copenhagen under Niels Bohr, who is a real Nobel laureate. Right. And so she, when the Nazis come, she doesn't want to go back home to America because it, you know she has the job of her dreams. Mm-hmm. And so she stays. And over the years, her um, best friend, twists her arm and she starts mimeographing copies of a resistance newspaper, which was a very dangerous thing to do in any Nazi occupied country. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, she and Henrik meet in the boarding house. Henrik moves into her boarding house and they strike this unlikely friendship. And she's wondering if there's something more to this shipyard worker that meets the eye. And as he's getting more and more attracted to her, um, he's in danger because he can't, he doesn't dare release his identity to her. But meanwhile, she's starting to fall for a man who doesn't exist. Mm, right. So fascinating. Now, I, you've written a few standalone novels mm-hmm. um, over the past couple of years, and I've really enjoyed them. So I'm just curious what inspired this one? Well, this one was pretty much inspired straightly by the research. Um, this is my 15th World War II novel. And so when you're writing lots of World War II novels, you're doing lots of research and you come up with all sorts, you find all these interesting stories. And I kept reading about things that happened in Denmark during World War II. Mm-hmm. And they just really intrigued me. Denmark was um, unique among the occupied countries. And they had a, um, a, one of the most inspiring stories to come out of World War II is the rescue of the Danish Jews. 
And I just loved that story and I really wanted to explore it in a novel. So um, this was my opportunity to do so. Yeah. I mean, I really hadn't read much about Denmark during mm-hmm. World War II before. I don't, I don't think I've ever read another novel that was set there during the war. So can you tell us more about the Danish resistance and, and how each of your characters played a part in it? I know you kind of mentioned it. Yeah, sure. Um, the Danish resistance was actually kind of slow to start um, because the, at first the Germans treated the Danes very well. They considered them fellow Aryans and therefore they thought they would, you know, the Danes would welcome them with open arms. Like here we are as your liberators. <laughs> right. But, the Germans weren't lacking for um, <laughs> arrogance, but yeah. uh, anyway, and at first the Danes weren't upset about, you know, they, they didn't like the Germans being there, of course, but they were treated well. They allowed, um, the Germans allowed their king to remain on the throne and they were very fond of their king. They allowed their parliament to keep running. Their government still ran as before. They had a lot of civil freedoms that you did not see in other occupied countries. They had some degree of freedom of the press. It was the Germans were looking over the shoulders, but they could get away with a lot of things they couldn't in other countries. And what was very important for the Danes is they did not oppress the Danish Jews at first because the Danes didn't have a history of anti-Semitism. And when the Germans came and wanted to do things, the Danish government said, you can't do that. They're our fellow citizens. They're one of us. You, you, you can't do that. Right. And the Germans wanted to keep the Danes friendly. They wanted to keep this area of, it was a small country, but if, if the Danes started to rebel, they would have to send in more soldiers and they'd rather have the soldiers at the front. So they wanted to appease the Danes. So they didn't crack down on the Jews for three years And because the standard of living was good, there wasn't much of an inspiration to start resisting. But there were, there there was a resistance that began and um, it was slow at beginning, but very um, determined. And over the years it grew and in 1943, it really exploded. And um, so that's why I set my story in 1943, because it was a year of great change in Denmark. The Germans started to crack down more um, on the Danish citizens and eventually on the Jews. Mm. And the more they cracked down, the more the Danes said, not in our country. And um, they began to resist. And they had one of the most interesting resistance movements in Europe. They were unified. They At first, they weren't. And none of the countries were they ever unified at the beginning. And right. they were, you know, they're, they're ideological opposites. They had, you know, everything that they're opposed but the Danes set up what they call the Freedom Council, which unified the different groups, and they all worked together, um, which just was unheard of. And they really said, we, we may be um, opposed to different things. I mean, there were communists on that group, and there were you know, arch conservatives and labor unions and physicians. I mean, the vast spectrum of society, they said, we may be opposed to many things, but we are unified in one thing, and that is for the Danish people. And they said, we'll put aside our differences to work together for our, for our country and for our people. And it was just a beautiful example of unity, and which I loved in today's very divisive world. Yes. And, um, it was really beautiful. Yeah, that's very um, 
relatable for people today too. That's yeah. great. And because of that unity, they accomplish great things. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, I understand that the sound of light is based on real life events. So you mentioned that um, Bohr, the scientist was real. Mm-hmm. Can you share which other events or people in the book are actually like real historical yeah, the, the whole story is wrapped around um, historical events. Um, one of the early events is an, an RIF, RIF um, air raid on a shipyard. Uh, so, you know, that was all real. You know, everything about that, I try to keep that very real. But mostly it was, so there are a lot of little events that happened in the story that were um, that were based on actual events. But the, the framework of the story is um, based around, you know, the two big events of the resistance and the rescue of the Danish Jews. And there was a real life story that truly inspired the character of Henrik Ehlefeldt. And it's a man named Newt Christensen, who was also an Olympic rower, obviously a real one. (laughs) And and he, um, when they cracked down on the Danish Jews, he hid dozens of people in his seaside home and then rode them across to Sweden one at a time. Wow. In this racing skull. And I said, wow, that's a great story. And and so I, you know, Henrik is not Newt Christensen. I changed a a lot of things. Um, I had Henrik working with the resistance from the, from the very beginning and I'm taking on secret identity, things that um, Newt Christensen didn't do. So, Mm -hmm. but his story definitely inspired Henrik. Okay. That's cool. Wow. I love it when real events and people work their way into a novel. That's, mm-hmm. that's great. How has writing this book changed your view of history? Oh, I don't know if it's changed my view of history because, well, for one thing, I knew about the events in the story before I started writing it. Okay. Um, Cause that inspired the story. But I think um, one thing that really impressed me about the Danes in World War II was their absolute humanity. Yeah. When they resisted, they did things in a different way. Um, You know, most countries, if they wanted, you know, the resistance, you know, they could get very violent. And um, the Danish resistance was very violent too. But one in August, 1943, they blew up um, the forum, which was a huge, um, you know, basically a convention center in Copenhagen and a really a Danish landmark. And the Germans were in the process of converting it into military barracks. And the Danes said, you're not using our landmark for military barracks. <laughs> we're just going to blow it up. But, wow. but what they did was they waited for the lunch hour when all the workers were outside the building Oh, wow. And they even didn't, they didn't do it when the Germans were in the building. They, the building was empty and they made sure the building was empty before they set off all the bombs. And so there was that just element of humanity, even in their resistance. Now there were some very, um, very violent um, episodes, especially later in the war as these things tend to spiral. And there are a lot of cases where, um, you know, people in the Danish resistance were, um, assassinating either Germans or um, Danish collaborators. So it did get more violent, but definitely not to the extent that um, saw in other countries. And um, once again, just a sense of unity that everybody was working together. 
And I, I love that because every, when I was studying France for until these fall in Paris, um, there was a real division between the resistance groups. And when they tried to unify them, it was, it didn't work really well. It got them a little bit unified. They worked together for D-Day, which was the most important thing, but um, definitely not as unified as um, we saw in Denmark. And that persisted up until liberation and they were still very much working together and, um, it was a real beautiful picture. And I think so much when we study World War II and we see how people reacted and we say, oh, well, they, they couldn't help it. And they just, you know, they had no choice. They had to let the Germans take their Jews away. Mm-hmm. And the Danes said, no, we're not going to do that. And um, we say, well, they had to resist. They had to kill people. And the Danes said, no, we didn't have to do that. So they just kind of all for an alternate view of what it looks like um, to resist and um, in a very dignified and humane way. That's so interesting. It's um, like a very different culture, I think, than yeah, what we're used very to seeing in Europe. Yeah, exactly. And now they did have some features in Denmark that made it um, easy to do that. For one thing, they were only 10 miles from Sweden. Sweden was neutral. So right. it you know, easy to, um, it wasn't easy, but easier than t- to um, rescue their Jewish population than it was in other countries. But um, right. so they had some unique aspects that helped them. But, but also it was just the Danish character of, um, of unity and humanity. And that really stuck out. Right. That's fascinating. Um, so what lessons or themes come out in this novel? I mean, it seems like maybe the, you know, the humane way they dealt with resistance is mm-hmm. one of them. Is mm-hmm. is that what you'd say? Or are there others? Um, I would say it's actually about courage because it comes down to the story of, of Henrik and Elsa. And um, Henrik has already made a very bold, courageous choice in his life. He's worked for the resistance. Um, he pretty much considers himself a dead man. And, um, you know, that obviously changes how he works. You know, when you don't think you have anything to live for and you don't mind if you die, you you're willing to do very brave and bold things. And, but Elsa comes from a very different point of view. She's more <laughs> normal. <laughs> like, like I think most of us would be in that situation where yeah. she's kind of got a comfortable life and, you know, maybe things aren't perfect, but does she really want to make waves? And she's also the type of person and this, I relate to so much. She doesn't like conflict she doesn't like to confront people. Mm. Um, she prides on herself on holding her tongue when somebody insults her. It's like, you know, look at what a good girl I am. I held my tongue. I didn't fight back. And like, I totally relate to Elsa. And, yeah. And at one point, um, Henrik is talking to Elsa and she's you know trying to make this decision. Her boss is being, you know, horribly rude to her and condescending and mistreating her. And, and he tells her, that sometimes silence takes much courage. And um, I really like that because sometimes it takes a lot of courage to hold your tongue. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes courage to not speak up when um, speaking up would um, harm others or, you know, just, you know, cause distress to others. But then Henrik also says to her, but sometimes silence is nothing but cowardice. (laughs) (laughs) And that strikes Elsa really hard because she's realizing, you know, she thinks she's being so noble by holding her tongue, but really it's because she does, she fears confronting this person. 
And as this is about the same time, she's deciding whether she wants to help the resistance by printing newspapers. And she's realizing that her silence and not helping the resistance um, is just cowardice. And she has to learn to speak up. Um, Henrik, on the other hand, has been training himself to be silent and not, you know, in his role as a shipyard worker, he has to be silent. Um, and at certain very crucial points in the story, silence means um, life or death for him and for his loved ones. So just that, when do we speak up and when do we be silent? And it isn't a always speak up, it's always best, or always be silent, it's always best. It's weighing what is best in each situation, what is the right thing to do. Yeah, that's very, um, it's kind of a complex yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting that it comes into play in this novel. That's neat. Um, so you are known for writing historically accurate novels. I mean, I guess writing about World War II for how many novels did you say? 15. 15, <laughs> yeah. So you you learn a lot about that. But can you yeah. um, share about your research process and how you make sure that they're so accurate? Yeah, and honestly, um, I I try my hardest to be accurate. And I write accuracy as a very high, a very important part of my writing. But I make an error. I'm an error. I make errors in every single book I write. I usually find out after the fact, after it's published, and somebody will contact me and say, "Oh, by the way," I'm like ah. So um, there's a different. Well, I hold a difference between accuracy and perfection. I will never attain perfection. Um, only right. the world is perfect. But I really try to be accurate. For one thing, I think it honors the people who lived it, and yeah. I don't want to be glib with history because people actually lived that people lived and died it. And I don't want to um, be cavalier with it. But in general, when I started a new novel, so for this novel, you know, Denmark was a story I hadn't, I hadn't set a novel in Denmark before. So I had to start with kind of a broad overview of what happened in Denmark during World War Two, mm-hmm. And also just reading up on overall Danish history and Danish culture, because that's going to inform how my characters act and react to the events around them. Right. And then I was researching more deeply into the Danish resistance and into the rescue of the Danish Jews and um, into Niels Bohr. I I read a biography on Niels Bohr and learning more about the Institute of Theoretical Physics, because that's where I also spend so much of her time. And just getting a culture. I was a chemistry major, so I kind of understand uh, some culture in um, in straight sciences. Um, but really understanding the, the culture of his lab, which was it was it wasn't um, like every other lab. And um, he he sounds like just just an amazing man. And I really wish I could have met him. I think he um, did an amazing job. He really nurtured um, the people in his lab, and he was rescuing. Um, refugees. He was half Jewish himself. And he took a lot of refugees from Germany and Poland and Romania and Hungary um, into his institute and protected them and then helped them go to England or Sweden. And so he was really doing some amazing work um, for the war too. Yeah. That's amazing. I talked to you last year about Until Leaves Fall in Paris and Um, the year before that, um, I'm trying to 
when twilight breaks <laughs> when twilight breaks I, knew. <laughs> I can barely keep them straight i don't expect others to <laughs> i just looked at it before and i'm still like it's like something about twilight um <laughs> so uh and i know that um these books even though they're standalone i believe that all three of these are connected yeah so- there is a slight connection um the three heroes were friends in college okay so yeah, so Henrik thinks about now this book because he is in Denmark and Denmark was occupied, so he has no connection, no um, he, they can't communicate with the outside world. Right. So he has and also since he has a secret identity, he, even if he could, there were people they could send letters out to Sweden and then get them to to England and then say to America, but because he has a secret identity, he can't even do that. Right. So he's really cut off from the world. So he doesn't know what's going on with his friends, Paul and Peter, during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I'll just, a little spoiler, they they do come into play toward the end. But um, okay, they, you know, they make cameos, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to read the other two books to understand this one at all. Right, right. No. Yeah. Okay. So um, what are you working on next? I'm wondering what's coming after these. Oh, I'm having fun. I'm almost done with my next book. Um, it, well, we're still waiting on the title, but it's set in London during the Blitz. And the hero is a BBC radio correspondent re- reporting on the Blitz. And the heroine is a Dutch refugee who is fleeing, who fled from Holland and in the process got separated from her three-year-old son. And she knows her son is on the way to London. That's all she knows. She doesn't know the name of the people. Um, there's a lot of backstory there, but um, so she is, she's gone to London desperately searching for her little boy. And so she enlists the help of this BBC correspondent thinking he can help her. And uh, meanwhile, the bombs are falling and suddenly they start finding out about all these murders that are taking place in London. And um, so they're trying to find her son, trying to find a murderer. And oh my goodness. Yeah. It's been an exciting story to write. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot happening. That's that's cool. Um, so this is my last question for you, and it's different. You know, I I decided on a new question for repeat repeat yeah. guests, so I don't have to end with the same question every time. Um, it's kind of a fun question, though. Right. If you could choose to live any time in history other than right now, in what time period would you choose to live? <laughs> now, as an author of World War II fiction, I should say World War II because yeah, well, I was wondering if you would say that because I can't uh, imagine choosing that era. Well, it's all these things. Like, um, part of me is like, yeah. I mean, can you imagine being there and actually experiencing? It? I mean, that talk about realism, adding that element of um, you know, adding the what uh, I love going on research trips because you can add the you know the textures and the yes. smells and the tastes that you. Um, I wasn't able to go to Copenhagen um, because of COVID. I had three trips that were canceled. Oh, oh my goodness. So I was missing that element. So I had just had to do a lot of research. And my husband yeah. had been there, so he'd been able to help a little bit. Oh, that's but, um, but this would be the ultimate research trip to actually go to that era <laughs> and live it. So part of me is like, can I be a World War II tourist and just <laughs> experience it, but then come back safely? Um, right. Because the reality is I'm a big fat chicken. And um, mm. I like living in safe times. <laughs> so I, um, yeah, um, honestly, as much as, you know, today is kind of a, is, is kind of a crazy era, but that's where God put me. And yeah. um, 
I love my family. I love watching. I just have a, a little grandson who was just born. Oh, and, wonderful. I know he's a doll. So I just like being here <laughs> and watching history play out in real time. So don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And, and, but it's good that you appreciate being here because I sometimes I think about, you know, living in a different time yeah. in history. But when, when I, I was do. a little girl, when I was a little girl, I wanted to live in the 1870s and be Laura Ingalls Wilder. Of and course. I, just, yeah. I felt like I'd been born in the wrong era and I just hated it and I didn't fit in and I was really an anachronism. And yes, I am. I, I don't fit. I'm not a modern person. I don't fit in the modern era. I, but I think if I'd been born in any other era, I wouldn't have fit there either. That's just my personality. Mm-hmm. And I'm more of an observer and I do my own weird thing. And so I, I would have been out of place in any time in history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just make the best of what we got. <laughs> yeah. And I, but I think it's a good reminder that, you know, God put us in the time that we're in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't do that arbitrarily. He did. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. Well, Sarah, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Oh, yeah. So I have um, a website, sarahsunden.com. And you can, if you're there, you can sign up for my email newsletter. I send that out about once a month. I don't spam you. Um, also on social media, on Facebook, and Twitter, and Instagram. So come find me. I love to meet my readers. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening. I know you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah. As usual, I do want to share some ways that you can keep in touch with us and ways that you can support the show. So number one, go to the show notes to get Sarah's books or to find the other episodes we did with Sarah. Um, You can find the show notes in your podcatcher app. You know, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, the show notes are right there with links and... um, If you can't get to it in your podcatcher, then just go online to alisontreat.com slash blog. And that's where all the show notes live. If you'd like to support us at Historical Fiction Unpacked, you can do that by subscribing or following the show. And then also by leaving a review. If you're enjoying this show every week, why not go ahead and leave us a five-star review? It helps get this show in front of other readers who might enjoy it. And Leaving a review only takes a couple minutes at the most. Also, if you want to go a step further, check out our Patreon. We have a few different tiers at which you can support the show. You can find that at patreon.com slash alisontreat, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. You can also get there from the show notes. You can also get to our Facebook group from the show notes, um, or you can search for it on Facebook. It's Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. So join us there. We'd love to have you as part of the conversation. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Historical Fiction Unpacked. And now that we have all that out of the way, I want to share with you a quote. This one comes from Elie Wiesel. He said, And now a prayer, or rather a piece of advice. Let there be comradeship among you. We are all brothers, and we are all suffering the same fate. The same smoke floats over all our heads. Help one another. It is the only way to survive. So my friends, keep that in mind as you go about your week. Keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week.